This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we'll finish up chapter 8. Matthew has turned his attention to the power that Jesus displayed. Many Old Testament prophecies foretold the kind of power the true Messiah would demonstrate on his arrival. Matthew is connecting the dots. We've seen Jesus' power over disease and over nature. Now we'll see Jesus' power over demons in the spiritual realm. But as before, we'll discover that everything, material and immaterial, is subject to God's will. And that gives us great reason for hope and peace. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's read Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. Word of God says this, When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went into the sea and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave the region. So church, what we have here in this scene is Jesus' complete control over the spirit world, which demonstrate his divine credentials. That, that is the main theme of this scene. That's the purpose for which Matthew is including this scene here, is to show us that Jesus has complete control over the spiritual realm, and that demonstrates his divine credentials. So what we want to do is break up the scene into a smaller parts for a better understanding of what's going on here. And when we do this, we divide up the scene in its natural divisions. The following outline emerges. The theological questions, the timely demonstrations, and the terrifying reactions. Let's go through them one by one. The theological questions in verses 28 and 29. This scene takes place in a region called the Decapolis. Mark lets us know that. And that name means a conglomerate of ten cities in Greek. And it was a predominantly Gentile region by this time. And something that Matthew wants us to know by placing a herd of swine in the area. No Jew would own pigs. And that's why we know this is a predominantly Gentile place. Now, the geographical setting then suggests that even though Jesus came to the Jew first, you will remember that in John 1 verse 11, the evangelist tells us that he came to his own first. Jesus came to his own first, but his own received him not. Now, Matthew demonstrates how Jesus reveals himself to Gentiles, something that he has already done by writing the scene about Jesus healing the servant of the Roman centurion in Matthew 8 verses 5 through 13. But I want you to know that the other uh, synoptic gospels focus on one of the two demoniacs. 
They focus on the one who was more severely affected, the one who was more violent. For example, Luke tells us in Luke 8 verse 27 that that man, the one who was more affected, was naked, which tells us Satan's strategy to shame and embarrass people. He hates human beings. Why, church? Because we are made in the image of God. And not only that, we are redeemable. Demons are not redeemable. Christ did not die on a cross to save fallen angels, but to save fallen humanity. For that reason, Satan hates people because we are the object of God's love. And that is evident here in the fact that this guy was naked. Another detail here, the more aggressive of the two men displayed supernatural strength. And we know that that's true because Mark tells us in Mark 5, verses 3 through 4, that no one could restrain this guy. No one could bind him, the Bible says, which demonstrates to us that spirit beings operate by a different set of laws. But we take great comfort in knowing God controls both realms, the spiritual and the physical world, the natural as well as the supernatural world. That's very clear here. And we will verify that once again. Another detail here, the more aggressive demoniac cut himself with stones. The Bible says, Mark 5, verse 5, which demonstrates, again, satanic hatred for human life. Satan wants to destroy human life. Now, let me make a disclaimer here. This does not mean, church, very clearly, this does not mean that people who cut themselves are demon-possessed. Please do not come to that premature conclusion. In this particular case, what we have here is a bunch of demons trying to destroy this poor man's life. And these demons had a name, according to Luke 8, verse 30, more like a title, Legion, because that was the designation of an army of 6,000 infantry Roman soldiers. So there were several, uh, in fact, one of the other gospels tells us at least 2,000, because those are the number of pigs that were in the scene there. But interestingly here, these demons, these diabolical troops, understood the identity of Jesus better than the disciples. Did you catch that? In chapter 8, verse 27, the disciples finished that scene by asking, Who is this man? Who even the winds obey him? Even the storm obeys him? Well, the demons answer that question. Not, no, we don't need to think that demons have right theology. But in this case, they know the identity of Christ. Why? Because they address Jesus as the Son of God. Now, these are fallen angels. We we need to remember that unclean spirits are fallen angels. So they would have recognized Jesus. They had seen the pre-incarnate Christ, again, in the spiritual realm, sometime before their fall. Here's something else that they knew here. Again, we can't base right theology from the mouth of demons. But it's an interesting thought here that these unclean spirits also knew that the Son of God will judge them one day. They know that, so they have their eschatology right. They know that Jesus Christ one day will judge them. That's why they say, have you come to torment us before the time? So surprisingly, the answer to their question, to the question of that legion of demons in verse 29 is, have you come to torment us before the time? The answer to that is obviously no. That wasn't the time that Jesus came to judge them. He was not there to render judgment. He was on the way to redeem people, to die on a cross as a substitute for sinners in his first coming. The sentencing of fallen angels is yet to come. Let me give you some details of that. For example, the Bible specifies the exact timing of the condemnation of the highest ranking demon there is. And that is Satan, according to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Shortly after the second coming of Christ, a non-fallen angel will incarcerate the devil for a thousand years. And according to John's vision... This is what will happen at the end of that thousand years that we call the millennium, verses 7 through 10 of Revelation 20. Listen to this. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. 
The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, this is a vision of the future. Here, this is going to happen towards the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium. The highest-ranking demon will be sentenced finally. But concerning the judgment of lower-ranking demons, that's their concern here, Paul instructs the Corinthians like this. Very interesting. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, what is Paul talking about here? The we, he was referring to church saints. And these are fallen angels because non-fallen angels don't need to be judged. They don't have any sin in them. So Paul is saying here, believers in Christ... Church saints will one day judge demons. That's what he's saying. So, so in other words, you and I, church saints, will serve as deputy judges, handing down sentences to demons on behalf of the only one who judges righteously. According to 1 Peter 2, verse 23, God is the only one who judges righteously. And we know that these court sessions will happen in the future, possibly in the beginning of the millennium, after the second coming of Christ, for a very simple reason. They cannot happen before our resurrection or our glorification because we cannot judge righteously until we have a sinless nature. You understand that, church? They cannot happen until our glorification and resurrection because between now and then, we are always going to be biased in the way we judge. We render judgment. So one of the things we're going to do in the future is we're going to hand down sentences to spirit beings, to evil spirits on behalf of God. Now, here's something else that this legion of demons in this story knew better than most people. Eternal divine judgment brings torment to the condemned. They knew that. And that's why they were concerned. They were asking Jesus, is, is now the time? Please don't do that. Send us to the pigs. Now, if they believed the modern interpretations of hell that we have out there, the popular views of hell, they would be begging Jesus to send them there now to that big party, right? Because... The modern view of hell that a lot of people want us to believe, which has nothing to do with scripture, is that hell is a never-ending party, and Satan is the host of that party, and there's plenty of drugs to go around. Nothing can be further from the truth. People in Hades are so busy being tormented, they will not have time to meet anyone, because they're going to be too busy hurting, being tormented forever in heaven. There's no fun to be had in, in, in Hades. Only perpetual suffering from an eternally guilty conscience. The proverbial never-ending worm, according to Mark 9, verse 48, the, the eternally guilty conscience for rejecting the Son of God. So there's no fun in hell. Remember, if that was true, these demons would be, well, please, send us there. We want to go. We, we can't wait to get there. But no, they understand that that's the place of torment that they're going to have to endure forever. So these are the theological questions in this scene here. Let's talk about the timely demonstrations, verses 30 to 33. Now, Matthew doesn't intend to present a study on demonology. I want you to know that. That's not his intent. His, his intent is to demonstrate Christ as the king of the Jews, the king of kings. He wants to highlight Jesus and his divinity, the majestic savior. But this scene here helps his readers understand the nature of spirit beings. So let's, let's, let's take a look at that for a little bit more. The nature of these spirit beings. They are fallen angels. 
They have personality, and they have intelligence, and they have will. They ask questions, they articulate thoughts. And the reason Matthew wants us to see that is so that we are not confused about the nature of this event. See, this was not a hypnosis session. This was not a, any type of natural healing that took place. This is an exorcism. Christ is casting out demons from these guys, and Matthew wants us to know that they were fallen angels. These are evil spirits that possess these two poor men and they have intelligence, they have will, and even though they don't have physical eyes, they are able to see. Now, in this case, they were using the victim's vocal cords to communicate with Christ. But again, demon possession is a strange phenomenon. Apparently more common in some places of the world than in others. But according to Matthew's description of this one, thousands and thousands of unclean spirits took full control of these two men, their minds, their voices, and their bodies. And as disturbing as this scene is, church, I want you to know, it served a divine purpose. If anything, to show us Jesus' power over the supernatural world. Jesus has complete authority over the satanic hosts. And that's the point. Now, perhaps in their pride, this legion of demons here thought that they could overpower Jesus. After all, no one up until that point was able to restrain them. So they thought, maybe we can do the same thing with Jesus. He's a man. And I'm afraid, church, that many people hold to a similar view today of a very limited Jesus Christ, a very limited God, that good God and the bad God and the, the like they're evil twins and they're fighting for control. That's the wrong notion. Just like people have the wrong view today of hell, most people who don't know the Bible have a complete wrong view that Jesus and Satan are equally powerful arch enemies. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're not locked in an eternal battle for control. Sometimes one of them gets the upper hand or whatever. That's nothing like that. Now, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity here, is infinitely more powerful than the demonic hosts. Why? Because he created them. That's what the Bible says in Colossians 1 verse 16. Paul says, for by him, meaning by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. In other words, everything serves a divine purpose, even when God allows a little more slack in the leash that he has over Satan, because it fulfills his divine purposes, and that's the case right here. This disturbing scene fits a divine purpose, and Matthew tells us exactly what that is. Furthermore, church, Satan and demons don't have the autonomy they want us to think they do. Everything they do must pass divine approval. We have a clear example of that in the book of Job, do we not? The first chapter of that book, God allowed the devil a little more slack on the leash when he told him in Job 1 verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So he had limited autonomy to act on the life of Job here because God allowed it. And Matthew wants his readers to see that. He wants us to see that likewise the demons could not do anything without permission from Jesus. That's why they asked him permission. Now, the other Gospels fill in the details here, Mark and Luke, and I want you to see that. For example, Mark points out that the demons bow down before Jesus, and that's in chapter 5, verse 6. And the word that Mark uh, is using there is a word for worship, proskuneo, to mean to bow down in submission. They bow down before Jesus because they recognize, well, this is the one who's going to judge us in the future. This is the very Son of God. Now, Luke observes that this legion of demons implored Christ. They didn't just ask. They weren't negotiating. They were imploring Christ. They're saying, please, do not send us to the abyss. Now, once again, these demons understood the sovereignty of God a lot better than most people today, people who don't know, don't care about the Bible. 
They acknowledge the identity of Christ, and they acknowledge the authority of Christ, and they acknowledge the sovereignty of Christ. And James puts it this way, James 2 verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, I know of preachers who fumble with this truth, and they demand healings from God. They demand blessings and prosperity from God. They, they really misunderstand the sovereignty of God. They really misunderstand the authority of God and the identity of Christ. Christ is not their genie in a lamp, not their servant, to be handing down blessings at their will. And they preach that kind of garbage. Demons are doing better than they. Now, look at verse 31 again. The reason Christ allows these demons to go into those pigs has been the topic of endless debates. But I want you to know that if you just keep reading the text, the answer is right there. The answer is in the text. Why did Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs? Now, before you speculate, let me tell you, the ceremonially uncleanliness of the pigs has little to do with it, has almost nothing to do with it. Now, reason with me. The people of the area needed a visual demonstration of the power of God. They needed to see clearly that this was not a hypnosis event, that this was not a power of suggestion, that this wasn't a, a theatrics thing. Nothing was staged here. They needed to know that this was nothing less than miraculous. So that's the answer to that question. Why did Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs? To provide them with a visual aid of what was happening there. So there will be no doubt concerning the identity of the one who performed this massive exorcism. Now, furthermore, the unclean spirits, as well as whoever else heard the dialogue, saw a preview of the judgment of demons. That was a preview of their judgment. They're really going to go to the abyss one day. In this case, for that time, the, the pigs went into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. But one day, the demons will really be sent to the abyss. That's why, according to Luke, I said, please don't send us to the abyss just yet. So, church, here's another lesson for us. This scene indicates that fallen angels can possess animals as well. That's something else that we learn here that's interesting to know. But don't start casting out demons from the neighborhood raccoon just yet. Because this narrative does not prescribe a norm. It describes an event. You understand the difference? This is not prescribing a norm. It's describing an event. I know people who used to cast out demons from electronics. There's no reason to do that. There's no evidence in Scripture that demons can possess your computer. And before you think that Jesus was cruel to the poor pigs, let me give you another biblical truth here. God cares more about people than he does about animals. And the reason for that is simple. We are image bearers. Animals are not Jesus says that in Matthew 6, verse 26, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So church, we are worth much more than animals. Why? Because Christ did not die on a cross to save pigs. He did not die on a cross to save animals. He did die on a cross to save demons. But people, why? Because we are in the image of God and we are redeemable. Animals exist to serve us by providing companionship, by providing clothing, and by providing food. They taste good. So that's the theological questions, and we look also at the timely demonstrations. You understand that God needed the people to have a visual demonstration of his power, and Matthew records that for us. The terrifying reactions, verse 34, and then we'll wrap up with that. The exorcism of these two demoniacs made the local news, according to Matthew. Here, the pig farmers, the herdsmen, reported this event to the city council, which caused everyone to come out and verify. And Luke reports to us what they saw and their reactions. Listen to Luke 8, verse 35. 
The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they became frightened. Now, the pig farmers were furious over the loss of their income. They care more about their income than one of their own. Obviously, that's the, the first inference that we make by looking at the text here, the, the, just the, the human nature there. Man, you came here to destroy our income rather than men. <laughs> Nobody could hold these guys, and all of a sudden, there's one of them sitting at the feet of this man, completely clothed and in his right mind. There's reason to celebrate. We should rejoice. But no, there's another reason. Obviously, the Gentiles didn't care about the Messiah. They weren't looking for the Messiah, but primarily, the whole town was terrified, is what we learn here. Not just some of them, not just the pig farmers, but the whole town was terrified so much that they could not celebrate the healing of one of their own. Again, And the terror must have been something similar to what Isaiah experienced when he saw himself against the holiness of God. And he says this in Isaiah 6, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have sinned a king, the Lord of hosts. That is, Isaiah seeing himself for his sinfulness against the holiness of God. So the whole town came and saw, this is God. This is the Son of God, and we are sinners. They, are, we, they were frightened by the holiness of God. And the reason for that is very simple, church. The holiness of God bothers us so much that we have to create gods according to our own image. That's what people do all the time. You, you cannot invent the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is holy, and that's the thing. That's what atheists don't get. You don't invent a God that is holy. You invent a God which you can domesticate. You inv- normally invent a God to serve your own purposes, but not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible frightens us with His holiness, and that's what we see here. Now, the Greeks did it. They invented gods according to their own image to justify their behavior. The Romans did it. They adapted a lot of the Greek mythology. And virtually every culture in the world has its own man-made divinities. And we Americans do it too. We're a little more sophisticated, but we do it too. We don't bow down to images, but we do bow down to ideas, do we not? The American dream, the self-made man, the exaggerated humanism that we have, you know, the worship of self, the worship of convenience. Now, see, people have no problem tolerating the Christ who loves. Everybody wants the Christ who loves and forgives. The Jesus who judges sin and sends unbelievers and demons to the abyss terrifies people. And that's probably the reason why these guys here, the whole town was terrified of God. Many respond with antagonism when they see the Christ who judges, not only the Christ who saves, but the one who judges as well. Many people respond with antagonism. They are the ones who will be excluded from heaven, and we pray for them, and we cry over their rejection. We don't look at that with a vindictive heart. We want to pray for people who reject Christ, but if they remain in their rejecting of Christ, they will tragically go to the abyss, to the lake of fire, and they will be excluded from the kingdom. Now, on the other hand, and the good news is that other people respond with submission and faith, and we become subjects of the kingdom of heaven, and we replace that fear with gladness and gratitude because of so great of salvation. I want you to see how Mark concludes the story, and that's in Mark 5, verses 18 through 20, and he says this, as he, meaning Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who was demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And Luke reports a similar ending here. This former demoniac here, the guy who was saved by Christ, was neither frightened nor resentful. Filled with gratitude, he wanted nothing else but to hang out with his Savior 24-7. He said, I want to follow you wherever you go. I don't want to do anything else in life because you saved me. I want to be where you are. And Jesus obviously wanted the guy to be with him. That's the reason he saved him. He's going to be with him forever in heaven as well as he's going to stay with us forever in heaven. But this just wasn't the time for that man to follow Christ all over town. Why? Because Jesus had a mission for him. What is the mission here, church? Go and proclaim. That's the mission. Go and proclaim. Go tell others. The people who are terrified of what they saw, tell them what wonderful things God has done for you so that they can be amazed. And the fact that they are amazed will lead them to repentance and faith in Christ. That's the plan. That is the divine purpose behind all of this. So that man can go and tell others about Christ. Go and proclaim. Now church, Jesus wants our eternal company. That's one of the reasons it saved us. And like that, man, we want nothing more than to be with Christ where he is, right? We look forward to eternity, right? We, we sing about it. We talk about it. We, we long for heaven. We want to be where Christ is. But in the meantime, my friend, he has a mission for you. For now, he sends us back into the world. You see, God called us out of the world. That's what it means to be the church, the ecclesia, the community of called out people, God called us out of the world and now he's sending back into the world with a message. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.